I got all, I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Membership in the Knights of Labor peaked in 1886. Approximately one in five American workers were affiliated with the organization, and together they organized thousands of strikes, some of which turned violent when industrialists brought in police or other strike breakers. In March of that year, Mark Twain addressed the Hartford Monday Evening Club, expressing his support for what he predicted would be the new dynasty. A trans-professional alliance of laborers was, Twain believed, an alternative to both the tyrannical European monarchical tradition and the corrupt plutocracy of capital in the United States. He said, when all the bricklayers and all the bookbinders and all the cooks and all the barbers and all the machinists and all the miners and blacksmiths and printers and hod carriers and stevedores and house painters and brakemen and engineers and conductors and factory hands and horse car drivers and all the shop girls and all the sewing women and all the telegraph operators, in a word, all the myriad of toilers in whom is slumbering the reality of that thing which you call power, not its age-worn sham and substanceless specter. When these rise, call the vast spectacle by any deluding name that will please your ear, but the fact remains, a nation has risen. Unfortunately, the Knights of Labor would never grow more powerful than they were in 1886. But their dream to force political change, improve standards of living, and more equitably distribute wealth by organizing workers in a general strike has been inherited by numerous national and international labor movements. In recent months, several economic commentators, notably the former labor secretary Robert Reich, have suggested that the general strike is already underway that what we have been calling the Great Resignation since the beginning of 2021 is in fact a grassroots response to the brutal conditions imposed on a wide range of U.S. workers who are choosing voluntary unemployment rather than accepting the imposition of ever longer hours, lower wages, shrinking benefits, and greater surveillance. In this episode, I speak to two scholars who are studying both the cross-sections of culture workers, some of whom are involved in the Great Resignation, and the cultural conditions which have informed, and perhaps to some degree enabled, the Great Resignation. Leclerc Leberg is speaking to us from Berlin, where she is a fellow at the JFK Institute for North American Studies at the Freie Universität. She is working on a peculiar history of capitalism, Marks for Cats, a radical bestiary. But today we're drawing primarily on her last book, Wages Against Artwork, Decommodified Labor and the Claims of Socially Engaged Art, published in 2019. Rachel Greenwald-Smith is an associate professor of English at St. Louis University. Most recently, she has published On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of an American Ideal. 
For more about our guests and a complete bibliography of works mentioned in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash great resignation. I'm going to start with Claire's concept of decommodified labor. And I first encountered this term when you came to Cornell, what seems like ages ago. It was probably like 2019. <laughs> yes, it was April 2019. It's the central concept in your most recent book, Wages Against Artwork, uh, which did come out in 2019 somewhat auspiciously. I might add, because I feel like this process of decommodification, which you have pointed out is sort of difficult to periodize, Mm -hmm. has nonetheless accelerated during the pandemic. So first of all, what is decommodified labor? How do you define it and distinguish it from things like invisible labor or abstract labor or casualized labor? And has your thinking about decommodified labor evolved at mm-hmm. all in the years since you published your book, and particularly in the conditions we've been living under mm-hmm. during that time? Totally. First, thank you for the invitation and the chance to be here with you, you both. Uh, just before I answer the question, I just want to say I do think there's a difference between decommodification as a sort of social process that comes out of work about what a citizen needs to do to reproduce himself, herself, their self in a capitalist democracy. In Scandinavia, you have access to things outside of the market like healthcare and and housing and education. In the 1970s, I believe, in Sweden, upwards of 70% of housing was public housing. And that's really incredible to think. It's no longer the case, but it's really incredible to think about. In my book and in my work, I try to take this idea of what it means for something to either enter a market, at which point we think of it's become a commodity or it's undergone a process of commodification, which I use a sort of Marxist definition, which is just made by wage labor, sold on a market. Something is has undergone a process of decommodification if it was once made by wage labor and sold at the market and, and no longer is. But I'm really interested in decommodified labor. And I think that is my term. I haven't seen that term before. And I, I don't say that out of any sense of propriety, but out of a sense of really to disambiguate it from this sort of general concept of we had Medicare for all, certain parts of medical care in the United States would, would have undergone a process of decommodification. Instead, I'm interested in a sort of doubling and undoing of the most central commodity of capitalism, which is the commodity of human labor. That's really what is distinct in a capitalist economy, is that humans are forced in order to reproduce themselves to sell their time, to contract their time in the form of a wage through this process of commodified labor. What I started realizing, like, primarily hanging around art spaces near 2011, 12, right around Occupy and after Occupy, is that these art spaces were staging these like ghostly scenes of really kind of banal employment practices as art in which no one gets paid, right? So what would an artwork like that look like? Like Thomas Hirschhorn's Gramsci Monument, right? Where he, he recreates a library in the Bronx. Well, a library is like a public service, but one thing it does have is a paid staff. It also has a lot of unpaid staff, which we can get into. So what does it mean to recreate that as an artwork? 
The book that I wrote is really looking at how from the 1950s and 60s under sort of late New Deal and sort of great society legislation, art went from being really one of the fastest growing commodity labor markets. So this is where we have creation of huge numbers of art departments, MFAs, things like the National Endowment for the Arts. I mean, there's really an idea that creative industries might be a way to enfranchise employment for people. By the 1970s, that's sort of like, no, ah, that's not really going to happen. You know, we have these MFA programs, so let's keep putting the students in them. But we're not, there's not going to be anything on the other end. At the same time, though, once you've been trained as a professional and you hope to sell your labor, and now I'm talking about in the creative economies, you know, there's, I think, a sense of like pride and dedication and desire to be treated as a professional who sells his, her, their labor. So it started to seem to me like decommodified labor, first in the arts, that's where I first encountered it, was an interesting concept because it, it contains certain utopian elements, right? Like, what would it mean to have an economy where the government, the state, supported artists. Like in many ways, that's a kind of utopian demand, I think, in our, in our present moment. But also the idea that artists who don't have that reenact employment as an art project about lack of wages <laughs> without any wages is also very dystopian. So that's really the book. It really started as looking at installation arts, mostly in the US and the UK, not coincidentally, the two most commodified markets for social services in the global capitalist north. But then what I realized in the, in the research of the book, and a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book, is that in fact, it's not just fine arts, it's not just galleries in New York City or Los Angeles or London. It's the culture industry writ large. It's museums where you have volunteers. It's the PTA. It's children's athletics leagues. It's Professional sports, I didn't know this. I mean, this I just find mind-blowing. But most people working in professional sports do not get paid. They volunteer. It's libraries. It's publishing. It's editing. Just this week, The Guardian had an article saying that 10 million jobs worldwide in the culture industries have been lost during the pandemic. And the headline was, was sort of seemingly contradictory because on the one hand, it said culture is one of the fastest growing industries. And on the other hand, it said it loses the most jobs. But in fact, I think what we're witnessing is the creation of formal contractual employment that doesn't have a wage. And that to me is different from the kind of intimate and affective care of you know, parenting or taking care of one's own parents. It's, it's different from affective labor, which is a term I don't have a lot of truck with, and, and we can talk about that. But to me, the idea that you could have an expansion of formal employment, contractual employment, employment that is wage-based but doesn't have a wage, seemed to be very worthy of studying. And it seems to really connect up to credit and debt expansion in the U.S. I mean, that's how all of the the social reproduction is facilitated after all. So if we employ sort of Marxist terminology of when does the crisis come? I mean, I think on the one hand, well, we're, we're in the crisis, right? We know that for years there's been no wage growth really since the 1970s. But now we know like, okay, not only has there been no wage growth, but there's been 
the growth of a shadow formal employment sector that is omnipresent in, I think, probably what, what you and Rachel and most of the listeners of the podcast are interested in, which is the world of culture, right? I think it's probably fair to say, I mean, I'm just throwing this out there, but I think it's probably fair to say that at least half of all labor in the cultural industries is not waged. And I just, I think that's amazing. I, I don't know that it gets the attention it deserves. One final response to your question, which is what do I think of the concept now? I, I really appreciate you asking me that. And I'm surprised to say, which is usually not the case with work that I have done. I'm surprised to say, I think it's like a good concept. I think it, I think it holds up. And, you know, I think I haven't had that many ideas in my life, but I think this might be one of them. It might be the only one, <laughs> it's, you know, we don't know. But like, I think, you know, if you can have one idea, I think that's, I think it's pretty good. I think it's really interesting to think about shadowy sort of double side of commodified labor, decommodified labor in terms of a theme like the one for this podcast, The Great Resignation. You know, because great, it's a term of sort of grandeur and importance. And resignation is the exact opposite. I mean, resignation is a sort of withdrawal of something. I think that that is maybe what's going on in the labor market, particularly in, I just want to stress, you know, culture industries, which includes, again, sports, gaming, sometimes things that academics don't always include as culture, but I think are absolutely part of global culture as a commodity and also as a site of sort of self-expression and relationality, communal relationality. There's several things I want to come back to there, but I want to make sure that we introduce Rachel first. On Compromise came out more recently, just last year, and it ends, in fact, with a provocative consideration of the lockdown phase of the pandemic as a period of no compromise and thus anathema to the American political imagination. But your argument over the course of the book is that we, ha we have to condition ourselves to regard compromise differently and not necessarily as something to romanticize or aspire to. And obviously now we're not in lockdown <laughs> and we're nearing 1 million American dead, partially as a result of what might be characterized as compromised policies. So I want to start with a similar question to what I asked Leclerc, which is like, what is the problem with compromise, first of all? And has your understanding of it changed as the pandemic has dragged on somewhat interminably? Those are good questions. First, I also want to say thanks for being, for having me here. It's so nice to be in conversation with you, Matt, and so good to have an opportunity to talk with you, Claire, again. We were speaking before uh, we started recording about how precious these opportunities are to be able to talk about ideas in the midst of everything that's going on. So what is the problem with compromise? It's funny because my answer to that maybe changes depending on audience. I was listening to the first couple of wonderful episodes of this season of this podcast and thinking about speaking about this book to an audience that maybe at least of this season that may be more left than a lot of the audiences of, that, that I end up speaking to about this book. Um, because the book was written in some at least partially in an effort to address an audience that I felt 
I could persuade, which was an audience just to the right of me. <laughs> so um, the book takes as its target sort of left centrism of the Obama variety that I saw as sort of remarkably prevalent in academia, despite all of the evidence accumulating all around us, especially during the Trump era, that such positions were not only destructive, but impossible. And I was interested in locating the appeal of sort of left centrism in the value of compromise as it's held up in American culture. And, I, and for me, that's both transhistorical. So there's a chapter in the book that looks at the various compromises in earlier American history from the two third, sorry, the three fifths compromise up through the Missouri compromise and up through the, the compromise of 1877 and how those historic compromises are actually just other ways of talking about the disenfranchisement and structural violence toward black people in America. In a more contemporary context, I was interested in looking at sort of the nineties up to the present as a rise in a period where we see compromises maybe transforming in political language from a way of talking about bipartisan deals and negotiations to talking about a kind of moral or ethical ideal that a sort of political disposition should aspire to. So very, very early on in the book, I make a distinction between compromise understood as, as a means and compromise understood as an end. Compromise as, an, as a means to me is what many of us do constantly every day. We have to give things up in order to live with people in a peaceful way. <laughs> compromise can be a really important part of lots of different collective practices that are really important. It's a way of not being selfish. <laughs> it's a way of taking care of other people and recognizing their autonomy. But compromise understood as an end is what happens when we hold up compromise as a moral value. When we say like the best leaders are people who compromise or we should make sure that we um, elect officials because they seem like they're able to compromise. Um, and I think that that latter sense of compromise has become more and more, actually speaking of what happens after the book's publication, I think the notion that we should get people who quote unquote are good compromisers into elected offices is becoming increasingly visibly absurd as we've witnessed what's happened with Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema who pitch themselves as these compromisers, but in fact are engaging in massive forms of obstructionism. Even if you wanted to buy what they're selling in terms of sort of the value of technocratic or centrism, which I don't personally buy politically, it's very, very clear that that position is no longer even a pragmatic position, even though it sells itself as sort of a form of pragmatism. It's actually very much a romanticization or an aestheticization of compromise as an ideal. So that's the version of compromise that the book takes as a target, is compromise held up as an ideal, as it has been over the course of American history, but especially intensely over the past 30 years or so. Um, and it looks at that in the arts, and it also looks at that in politics. And yeah, I end with a strange meditation on lockdown that I wrote during lockdown. And it's interesting to revisit it because I, I think some of the things I say there hold true and some of them absolutely don't. I mean, what I will say about the present and thinking about what Claire said in opening and talking about decommodified labor, several chapters of the book take up the avant-garde, take up punk, take up different forms of cultural refusal. And I think in focusing on these moments of refusal, one of the things I'm doing is sort of putting forward 
a counter, maybe maybe a counter romantic ideal to the romantic ideal of compromise. Just just as we've held compromise up as a romantic value, people historically have held up refusal as a romantic value. And just as refusal when it's romanticized doesn't bear itself out, right? Like punk turns out to be enormously politically unstable. It ends up being used by the right as well as by the left. The avant-garde ends up being racist. It ends up being sexist. It ends up being allied with fascism at various moments. Both punk and the avant-garde end up being, you know, reappropriated and commodified. So these are not in any way positions that fulfill their promises. And yet I do think, and one of the things I think I'm trying to put forward in the book, is that there is value to refusal as an ideal. (laughs) The disappearance of refusal as a value or as something that we can uphold romantically in some way disempowers people from being able to think outside of the confines of capitalist exploitation, of racist exploitation, and so on and so forth. So I was thinking about your periodization of decommodified laborly, Claire, and I was thinking about how interesting it is that it sounds like the sort of intensification of the period of decommodified labor, wherein people increasingly do what seems like formalized work without a wage or what looks very much like formalized work without a wage. It seems to overlap in some ways with what I would locate as a disappearance of the sort of ethos of refusal, especially in the arts, right, where we see the fading of the avant-garde. And I was thinking how many people, like, I mean, this is, I actually don't know, but I was thinking like how many people who are doing this unwaged work might have 30 or 40 years ago been doing other kinds of unwaged work, but unwaged work that maybe didn't look as much like contracted work. So producing their own zines, running their own show spaces, doing kind of more uh, kind of underground subcultural forms of work that didn't have this sort of formality of an internship or or something like that. Because I do think there's something to that replacement of the desire to refuse with the desire to be recognized as like a formal worker. I think it's really smart. I think it's really accurate. I just had an exchange with somebody this week. Actually, maybe you guys were on it. Actually, maybe Matt, you alerted me to it. But somebody on Twitter wrote of the the sort of eclipsing of the discourse of selling out. And I know, Rachel, you obviously take this up in many ways in your book. And I think this is in a sense like the economic charge of moralized liberalism, um, which you which you attend to in so many, I think, really rich ways. Again, like the great resignation, it's like, well, there's there's nothing left to sell. You don't sell out, you don't sell yourself. I think the way that you're you yourself are periodizing that in your comments, but also in your book, it's a history that's not in the book that I wrote, Wages Against Artwork, which is very much looking at a certain scene of social practice art in a certain moment, like maybe between, I don't know, 2005 and 2015. But I think the advantage of both your book, Rachel, but also your framing right now, is it really looks at the sort of the long durée of, durée of Fordism and its eclipse. I mean, I know there are obviously historical sallies into earlier moments in American history. Um, but to me, it seems like a 20th into 21st century approach to the the problem of what happens with the stakes of political liberalism when the language of liberalism isn't necessarily there and other languages have to be produced and substituted. I mean, I think it's a really exciting way to 
to think about it. That idea of selling out and as a metaphor, as well as the way that it is deployed, I, I think is is one of the things Rachel already said, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring the two of you together for this conversation was that I do see these things as potentially concurrent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm not sure to what extent they are collaborating forces and to what extent they are sort of competing interpretations of what has been happening, not just over the course of the Great Resignation, although I do think that's a kind of acceleration, but going back, as Rachel said, right, at least 30 years, possibly all the way to the sort of, in, you know, the 1973 moment that we often pose as sort of pivoting into neoliberalism, right? The idea of selling out strikes me, and I, and I think it was Olivia Stoll that raised that on Twitter, right? Is there any such thing as selling out anymore? These seem to be two sort of competing answers to that, right? One is there's nothing, no, there's no possibility to sell, right? Because we no longer see culture work as something that is exchangeable. And then the other is that compromise is the end. And so there's there's going to be no stigma associated with selling out because that's everything that you are supposed to be designing yourself to do is get to the point where you can com compromise your ethos to sell it on the market, right? And so it does strike me that that metaphor and the way in which it clearly had uh, stakes in the 1970s, in the 1980s, into the 1990s, and no longer seems to mm. kind of spontaneously describes both decommodified labor and compromise as a political ethos. Right? And I, so that's part of why I wanted to bring these two things together. Are, are they sort of competing, competing explanations or are, you know, is this a kind of concurrence? Well, I think one thing that I would just add is a methodological point and, and something that I, really, I think, appreciated about your book, Rachel, is that you have a, a capacious archive to this problem, right? It might be found in your memories of yourself being like a teenager. It might be found in the annals of the avant-garde. It seems like you you have and you your book exemplifies a commitment to saying something like, this is my rubric, this is what I see. These are sort of possible ramifications and articulations. And I don't necessarily need to go further than that because there's a kind of argument even in the sort of collating that you're doing of the book. And one thing that I tried to do with my book, I mean, I didn't even mean to, to do it. It just sort of happened was there's no like commodification is good, commodification is bad, decommodification is good, decommodification is bad. I mean, like in a system where the way that you get money that you need to eat and house yourself and raise your children like if, if to do that, you need to sell your labor, then in a certain sense, most people want to sell their labor. That is a, that is a genuine desire. I didn't necessarily mean to do this, but I'm so happy it ended up this way. I have artists for whom the specter of their own decommodified labor is genuinely liberating. It's like, I hated doing it. I hated the anxiety. If my artistic space and world is going to be a community theater, down the block, run out of the basement of a church, like that's fine. That is fine with me. Like there is something present and utopian about that. For other people, it's very dystopian, decommodified labor, because they went into debt to become artists and they still have to pay their loans and they still need to eat and they still need to pay their rent. And so I think 
really trying to not attach a moral valence to these terms and instead just show their inflection in a variety of moments is something that I definitely think Rachel's book benefits from. I hope mine, I hope mine does. But I think that's also maybe like a methodological and, and mutual sympathy that they share. And they also share this question of what happens to art, what happens to culture at the sort of historical edges of liberalism. Rachel uses the language liberalism with much more, I think, intent and with much more acumen than I do. I use the language more of capitalist democracy. But I think they're two idioms for the sort of same set of problems, right? Like, how do you find space in those moments at the beginning, at the end, to reproduce yourself, reproduce your community with a certain amount of culture? And then what does that culture start to bear? I think that's your, I think it's one of your questions again and again, Rachel. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that, I mean, one of the things I guess to say about selling out is that it, in some ways that was one of the hardest concepts for me to talk about in my book, partly because in its older usage, it was used as a moral condemnation. And yet, to Claire's point about method, right? Like, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I took recourse to the first person and to the use of autobiographical material in the book. But one of the reasons for that is that I absolutely did want to try to figure out how to talk about concepts like selling out that have traditionally been used morally in such a way where I can try to both acknowledge the problems with the moralization of essentially what were the outcomes of structural forms of violence and exploitation, capitalism, racism, patriarchy, etc. Because I, I don't think we should be moralizing the consequences of those things. But at the same time, I wanted to take seriously what the claims were trying to do on behalf of collective imaginations. Because I do think the reason that selling out was used in, say, punk communities in the 80s and 90s was because there was this sense that there was a threat to collectives and to communities when the work that artists were doing that was bringing them together in collaboration with one another was heavily monetized <laughs> and commodified. And that, that did, to some degree, tear apart thriving groups of people who were working in some form of reciprocity with one another um, and put them into positions of competition and, and often tore apart very important and interesting subcultural art movements. So how do you talk about a term like selling out and, and sort of maintain the seriousness of the accusation in terms of there was a serious place where it was from which it was coming right it was coming from a very real concern that these movements were being destroyed and that they were being destroyed by commodification increased intensified commodification but they were being moralized so one of the ways that i ended up dealing with that in the book is by using the first person strategically to position myself at the sort of Point, sort of the sort of hinge point of those moral impossibilities, right? To sort of say, like, this is what it feels like to be put in this position where what looks like a moral choice is actually no choice at all. This is also what it looks like to be someone who's utterly convinced that something like selling out is terrible, but has no leg to stand on because she herself or me myself are in the pro are constantly in, in 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 the process of selling out in all sorts of ways right it strangely for me the first person and the personal voice became a way of trying to get past 
the personalization and individualization of concepts like selling out by sort of clearing the sort of saying like yes this is what it feels like this is what ex this is is experienced as this is how this happens and now let's sort of like talk about why this matters what its consequences have been what possible alternatives there are and so on and so forth so i like i actually deeply mourn the loss of selling out as a vocabulary but not because i think that people should be morally condemned for selling their work or for making money but because i think it does mean that a certain desire for uh collective experiences of art making that stand outside uh, I don't even know how to say this exactly because it's so hard because you can't say stand outside the market because they didn't stand out. Subcultures never stood outside the market, but that at least aspired to or rejected certain aspects of it or saw themselves in, as, as anti-capitalist, even if they ultimately did end up being capitalist shills in various ways. The loss of the desire for that, that, that is visible in the fact that selling out is no longer really a viable accusation does make me sad. And I do think something is lost. Is it to some extent true that the underground is what disappeared, right? That the the notion of sort of underground cultures, subcultures, as constituted in the 20th century and prior, disappears with the emergence of platform capitalism. That the need to adapt whatever cultural work one is doing to self-promotion or promotion on the internet, on social media, then removes the possibility of what was the sort of underground aspect of punk and other sort of subcultural forms, which leads me into this question that I think is related to both of your work is, to what extent does platform capitalism play a role in these forces, right? That the myth of democratization that comes with the emergence of the internet and then social media, thus, you know, making artwork, culture work, something that the individual can sort of create and share via those platforms, thus then escaping from the selling out by using these forms of self-promotion, by using these networks, you would be able to escape from the structures of the music industry or of publishing. Of course, that's not what happened at all, right? The platforms became the structures right, and co-opted those existing industries, right? But to what extent does the illusion of democratization that came with platform capitalism play a role in decommodifying labor and in sort of changing the notion of what it means to sell out, right, to, to compromise oneself. I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name who wrote the book Platform Capitalism. It's Nick. I think it's Cernisek. But I think the question of platform capitalism, if you read his book, it's a, it's a, it's a good book. It's a, it's a short book. Um, and it's an interesting read. But he sort of asks, okay, how are these companies, where's the money to be made, right? And one of his own answers is, the depression and substitution of wages. That's endemic in the platform capitalism model. Now, I think, I think what we probably need to tease out, and I think that Rachel's book does such a good job of this, and I think this is maybe what you're hinting at in your question, Matt, is there, on the one hand, there's like the structural model of the constant wageless production of content that's going to be 
hoovered up and disseminated. And that is quite literally built into the structure of platform capitalism, as is the outsourcing of labor to places where wages are much, much cheaper. The second question, I think, is the more ideological question. And I think it's what Rachel was hinting at, which is when do people who produce their own artistic fantasy or structure or content cease to narrate to themselves that that's what they're doing? And when do they begin to think of themselves as doing something else, right? Like there is a horizon here. And I think what's so interesting about the arts in comparison to something like sports, which I love I love to come back to as an example. Me too. Let's say you, Matt, decide to pick up a tennis racket, start swinging it around. No one's going to tell you, like, put in the hours and you might be the next Roger Federer. Like... <laughs> If you have the dedication, if you've got the time, if you've got the money, like that could be you. This is not to say that sports is not, on the one hand, hardly commodified, on the other hand, hardly decommodified, but there's a different outlet and articulation for fantasy and identification and desire. And it's not that you're going to become Roger Federer, it's that you're going to enjoy watching him, right? And you can dress like him, you can buy his clothes, you can have a crush on him, you know, all these things you can do. But in arts, and I think this is what, you know, we might want to account for in terms of the, the punk scene and the relationship of the development of punk with the development of the MFA program, which I have never thought about, but I, but I think would be a very interesting thing to think about, is, you know, in arts, because there's no metric of evaluation, somebody could say to you, look, Matt, go get your MFA. You might be the next Jeff Koons. <laughs> and you know what? You might be. There's no reason that Jeff Koons is Jeff Koons, but you might be the next Jeff Koons. So somehow that articulation of what is possible as a professional durée starts to change in arts and culture, right? And it, it, it does come from someplace genuine, you know? And I think also like, as we think about demands for a kind of Green New Deal, more sustainable economy, like paying people to be artists is a great way to go. Yeah, There is something real about that desire. But I think this question of when, does, when do people stop making the charge of selling out because the narration of like self-belonging and self-horizons has shifted in some way so that it's not meaningful to charge at somebody else. It's also not meaning, a meaningful way to, to understand somebody it's one of the interesting things about your book, Rachel, is to see how how that now sort of functions anachronistically. Well, I wasn't prepared for that. It didn't occur to me. But now that I've read it and have seen these exchanges lately, I'm like, yeah, that is yesterday's charge. They're, they're new charges. You know, there's a new set of problems here. Yeah, I think the question of platform culture is interesting. And honestly, it's not the way I've never thought about periodizing what I do in relation to the digital. And maybe that's just dumb because <laughs> it's, it's obviously a huge part of the way that these things happen. But I think so much more in terms of the sort of relationship between politics and economics and, and how those things inflect people's beliefs about the world more generally. <laughs> so, I mean, this is like why I still sort of, even though I understand a lot of the problems with it, I still take a lot of inspiration from Wendy Brown's work on neoliberalism, because I think that it's important to think about how changes in the market change 
people's understandings of themselves as subjects. And so that's sort of the way that I've always kind of periodized my work. I do think it's interesting, like I think I, I was trying to think of case studies. So I was thinking about the music industry a little bit. And in the book, I talk about my participation as a adolescent in the music scene in Portland, Oregon, which, you know, again, like all of the other sort of avant-garde and punk examples I use was highly problematic. It was mostly white, male, all of those things that indie music scenes are. But it was a space where the accusation of selling out still held water. Like everyone in the Portland music scene hated Everclear (laughs) because they just clearly came into Portland to make money and get national recognition. But what, you know, what's interesting about the question of platform culture is that my memory of the change in music culture was that the viability of the underground disappeared before the rise of social media platforms. Hmm. Um, and it happened in the case of music around the time of like, you know, Nirvana's rise to fame and the emergence of Alternative Nation on MTV as a replacement hmm. for the much more yeah. quiet and cerebral 120 minutes, which was always on at midnight um, instead of on during prime time. And so there was this sort of cultural acceleration in the 90s of the appropriation of underground mu- music movements. It also happened to hip hop at the same time, right? Around the Yo, MTV raps, I think. Yep. When does that start? In the 80s? Mm, late 80s? Late 80s? Early 90s? Mm-hmm. So that's all happening in during the 90s. There's other ways to think about this, right? It's post-1989. It's like in the lead up to the WTO protests. It's, there's a number of different ways to think about the 90s. It's like sort of the moment when this is all happening. <laughs> but, you know, what's interesting is that there's this sort of, yeah, I think accelerated appropriation of underground music movements over the course of the 90s. To the point where by the end of the 90s, and again, this is before the rise of social media, it starts to look impossible to have an underground music movement. But in the, in the, in the book, I sort of pose that experience of the 90s in Portland against my experience of being in a, in a rock band in New York in the early 2000s. I started playing with them in 2003, and I left in 2007. And that was the moment of the rise of social media platforming and its effect on music. So the, so MySpace was ascendant during this period. It was also the time period, it was the moment when there was an indie band that sold 200,000 records before signing a major label record deal, or any re- record deal. Like, they didn't even have an indie label deal. The band was called Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. So there was this famous record that was released during that period of time that sells all this, and all of a sudden, all the record labels are like, oh, we don't need to sign development deals anymore. We don't need to give artists money to develop from having an indie following to having a major following before releasing their records. We can just ask bands to already sell 200,000 records, and then we can sign them and just put out those records. And that happens, I think, as a direct response to platform culture in the sense that it makes such a thing possible. So in a certain sense, the accusation of selling out in the music culture disappears twice. It disappears first during the 90s when there's no longer a viable underground to to claim membership to in order to sell out from or in order to sort of sell out one's position within. And then it happens again and maybe much more powerfully once platform culture does replace label culture in music. But I think what happens in that second iteration, which feels particularly worrisome to me, it it, it seems to sort of empty out possibilities for the sort of reintroduction of a concept of the underground or something, is that unlike like MTV and other music institutions, like 
MTV and other music institutions, they got really good at appropriating underground movements, but there still was this clear sense that they were the enemy. Like that the big, big institutions were like, you know, the the sleazy AR guy, you know, like screw him. (laughs) But platform culture doesn't offer an enemy. And so one of the things I try to do in that little chapter on selling out is is, um, I end with a reading of the book, The Sellout by Paul Beatty. And of course, that's a ver- different version of selling out in that book. It's a, the question there is racialized selling out versus, you know, capitalist selling out. But I think what, what's instructive about Beatty's work is his work in the satirical mode. Satire seems to me to be an important choice in that book. And so far as satire always requires a sense of an enemy. Mm-hmm. Satire is an attack. That's a possibility that I'm interested in, in reintroducing. The, I mean, the claim you make about MTV's role is is a powerful one, right? That Nirvana is main, mainstream, right? But they are alt-mainstream, right? Tupac is mainstream, but there is a subcultural origin that's evident. And they are placed in direct conflict with, like, Madonna and U2, right? And, like, the, the pop tradition. And I would think almost simultaneously the same thing is happening in indie film, right? That you have sort of indie film becoming mainstream, but also placed in relationship to action films and horror films and the sort of pop cultural products being produced through the conventional studio system instead of through the festival system, right? Is there is there an analogous competitive infrastructure developing in the 90s in art, Leclerc? Is that... The, the sense of Competition. I don't even know what it means to be talking about competition. I'm not even sure that's the right metric right. because the scale is so surreal. I mean, I really do think sports is the better scale of like, yeah. Yeah. does everybody who hits a tennis ball on the community court, are they competing with Serena Williams? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a better question to ask. Is there something that happens in the 90s? that alters the sort of landscape of sports as entertainment in a way that participates in this sort of removal of an idea of selling out or subculture. You know, it's funny. It's funny. There's this um, book that I tried to read. I just have been working on an article on tennis. And the book is called, I think, How Sport Became a Business. It's by a New York Times sport reporter and it's one of these like terrible liberal histories where everything is framed as like an accident you know like if it hadn't <laughs> if well it's always like if it hadn't been raining and these two people hadn't run into each other in the clubhouse we might never have had professional golf you know it's it's a it's just like liberal trope of avoiding economics by everything is a coincidence like the whole world has been a coincidence for a hundred years you know like i don't know any music history at all whatsoever. But I do wonder, in terms of movements taking from other movements, I've heard people talk about how rock and roll appropriates from blues, right? You have this sort of like white rock and roll performance of the late 50s and early 60s taking from Black musics. And so I just just wonder if we would do ourselves better by not trying to periodize a kind of like newness to this and, and just more a nowness to this, right? Like this is happening in this moment. But I do know that what happens in the 90s in art is that MFA programs continue to expand. They start expanding in the 80s, they expand in the 90s, they continue to expand 
into the yachts and the funding to go to them increases. As it does so, again, the narration is like, you can be a professional, right? And I don't, I don't think that was ever the narration. I mean, you correct me, Rachel, in the punk scene. It's not like, go to enough punk shows and you can be a professional punk musician. I mean, that's not the, that's not the ethos. At the same time, you don't have to go $100,000 into debt to start playing punk shows in someone's basement. So, I mean, I do think that there's a moment if we want to periodize that, you know, that I would say from the late 70s, mid 70s on stagnating wages and an expansion of a credit debt apparatus. And I think that leaves a particular mark on culture, not so much sports. And then I think it's a different political economy in that, in that moment. We just don't have the training apparatuses. I mean, you have, you have people going to college on these horrible scholarships and not getting paid, but most of them are not going to become professionals and there's no idea that it, that it's even possible is that so i wanted to come back rachel brought up uh, wendy brown's neoliberal rationality and i sort of wanted to come back to that because lee claire and i have talked about this before lee claire has published about this i have some stakes as a 19th century americanist in claiming that economic rationality, which is something that I read in Twain's work, isn't an invention of the 20th century. But I do I do want to grapple with the the idea that one of the ways in which decommodified labor might be produced or the, the incentive to decommodify one's labor might be produced by the sort of entrepreneurial self, which is one aspect of how Wendy Brown describes neoliberal rationality. How we have become so accustomed to turning ourselves into products, right? That the promise, and you talk about this in your book, Leclerc, the, like the promise of exposure, right? Of some sort of non-monetary, non-waged reward is enough sometimes to get somebody into an internship or to give their work to a gallery or to loan their labor in some way to, you know, to come on a podcast, right? Like there is this sort of acceptance of our labor as product and as product in a highly mediated marketplace in which exposure is also a commodity that then maybe gives greater credence to this idea of neoliberal rationality as distinct from previous forms of sort of economic psychology. Yes, I do think that her description and what she takes from Foucault, I mean, I, I do think that these these terms of entrepreneurship, self-entrepreneurship, risk, risk management, they are completely endemic branding. Oh my God, mm -hmm. stakeholder. I swear to God, if I hear that one again, I could throw something. But no, they are endemic and they're endemic in the self-narration of many people in the precise communities that we're talking about here. Yes. That is their truth. Their yes. truth is a truth of self-narration and self-articulation. The problem is with the market and human capital, an asset is only as good as it is when you can resell it. And all of these artists, entrepreneurs, whomever, who go in debt and, and, and pledge themselves and hope to securitize themselves through loans, securitize their human capital, at the end, again, they've got to sell it. You've got to be able to sell it. It doesn't matter if it's a market in real estate, 
you know, corn futures, whatever it is, there has to be something at the end. And there's not in this in this market for culture. And I think that I think that that truth, I think that's a base in the Marxist sense of the word truth that produces a certain superstructure. I mean, here I think we might be allowed some sort of political economic crudeness. I think that sort of links back to what we were talking about in the in the first part of our show about like the sort of idiomatic or generic conversation about decommodified labor is, well, I wish I could sell out. Like, I would love to sell out. That would be great. Show me who is buying. When when I think about the discourse of of neoliberalism, my my concern with with Brown is it's presented as too much of a structure and not enough of a kind of self-narration and understanding. But I do think there's an absolute truth to that, and it is completely saturated. I don't have to you guys or your listeners, the American higher educational landscape. You're a consumer. You have a commodity. You can sell a commodity. Go into debt. You'll be rewarded. And and that logic absolutely uh, affects culture. This is where we are. And now throughout the academy, you see ads for volunteer labor, decommodified, whatever you want to call it, volunteer adjuncts. I mean, it is constant. There's some kind of contradiction. There's some kind of contradiction here. The work that you're going into debt for, you first have to give away. Something doesn't make sense, right? You do not have to be a neoclassical economist to figure that one out. I mean, one of the consequences of exactly that self-narration, I agree with you completely, Lee Claire, that it does that what, what's happening is on the level of conversations that people have with themselves <laughs> about what, what they're doing. But, you know, it, this gets back to your what you said earlier about, like, what punk thinks that they're going to, this is going to be their job or whatever. <laughs> like, I mean, I do think that one of the things that we see that absolutely leads to the situation that you're describing, Lee Claire, is insistence that one's passion needs to also be their job, right? I don't know if you call that neoliberal. I think that's, it's an Ameri- it goes, it's an American ideology that like the calling and all of those kinds of things. So, I mean, I think there are probably connections that I don't entirely understand uh, or don't have the knowledge to be able to make in relation to higher ed, but the increase in certifications, you know, MFAs are another good example the increase of programs in the arts that lead people to think that they can do whatever it is that they love to do as a career and that doing something as a career is what makes it valid mm-hmm. <laughs> or is what makes it real, mm-hmm. you know? So like, I mean, one of the things we might be talking about when we talk about sort of the fading of underground alternatives or, or fading of underground movements in the arts has to do with the transformation between people who are interested in the arts thinking about the things that they do as ways to make money versus not thinking of what they do as ways to make money. I mean, I mean, I think there are probably still plenty of people who engage in the arts knowing that they're not going to make money doing it. But I do think that when you think about something like self-publishing, right, in, lit- in, in literature, there are all these ways in which there are now promises being made to people that they can do the arts professionally and be art professionals that lead away from ways in which people have always engaged in the arts Mm -hmm. meaningfully and often in more collective capacities through Mm -hmm. movements and sort of engagements with friends and collaborations. So that's one way, I think, to tell the story about what happens to whatever kind of genuine forms of refusal might have existed in these sorts of 
avant-garde or otherwise oppositional art movements in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think you have to narrate a break to say that, but I do do think there's a trend in that direction. It hints at the tragedy of the commodity form. Because you yes. can see how coming out of this like great society or the WPA in the 1930s saying like, look, we have people doing community arts, doing amateurish arts, like why shouldn't they be paid to do it? You need to be paid to do something. Why not be paid to do this? What what to say like at a certain point? It, it's, yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like the Joan Robinson, the only thing worse than being exploited by capitalism is not being exploited by capitalism. I mean... Like, but if those are our choices, I mean, that's like cruel optimism at a whole new level, you know? Yeah. It's, cruel I mean, pessimism. The cognitive dissonance that you articulated just a moment ago of this is the place where we see the illusion of the grand equation of orthodox economics just crumble, right? In that moment where the college or the recording company or the publishing house has to say simultaneously, the exact same kinds of labor are really valuable when we're selling them, but not valuable at all when we're buying. And so at one and the same time, you can say to the artist, you're making music that is popular, but you haven't done enough to make it marketable. Right. And also say to the audience, this music is really valuable, right? And that happens, as you said, in the university, it happens in the gallery, it happens in the museum, it happens in all of these cultural spaces. And that cognitive dissonance, right, just like it breaks down the whole logic of market rationality. It does. I think, I mean, thank you. I, when I hear you saying back what you heard me to have said, I, I'm like appreciative if I said that. But it reminds me of the artist uh, Christine Lang, who actually does make, I mean, she does sell paintings, which that's its own accomplishment. But uh, when she talks in classes, she says to students, she's like, you know what? If you want to be an artist, buy real estate. That's how I make most of my money. If you don't have it, you're not going to do well. You need to have money in the first place. And you're going to be competing with people like me. (laughs) I mean, there's something so really cruel and humiliating about saying, like, here you are, you're going into debt, you're getting your MFA, here comes a professional artist, and she tells you, look, if you're not sitting on an inheritance already, like, you know, the game is up. It's like the game was already up. And it's cruel and humiliating in a whole different way to say, expand your Instagram base, you know, get it, you need to build your audience. And so I don't, I I mean, you know, this comes back to, you know, the punk line or the anarchist line, the fuck work. Like at a certain point, like work is not, it's, it's not, it's not the way out. That's the perfect transition into something I wanted to ask you both. For one thing, James Livingston, who wrote the essay, fuck work, is going to be on the podcast later. Oh, get out. Okay. Wonderful. And we already talked in the, just the previous episode with uh, Heather Berg, right? Her book also has a porn worker using that phrase in a, in a very Amazing. Oh, my God. I haven't way. listened to yeah. that one yet, but I'm so happy to hear that. But also, as you, you mentioned, the sort of illusion of the influencer, right? That if you market yourself well enough, you will eventually be able to make money from your work. You know, it gets to our conversation about platform capitalism, but it also leads me into a question I wanted to ask about the great resignation. There's a TikTok meme that's been going around 
one of my students did, did an analysis of it just this week. I, I, don't, I don't expect either of you have seen this yet. I'll, I'll describe it to you. In, in each version, the TikToker, I, I'm not even sure if that's the right parlance, right? But in each version, they perform both sides of a conversation with their boss. And it always ends with the employee quitting because the boss is demanding something often a return to the office from a remote work situation, which they can't justify. It just it, like, it doesn't have any negative bearing on job performance or overheads or teamwork or anything. Like the boss just can't come up with a rationale to bring them back to the office or to, to not do the thing that the worker is asking them to do. And after searching unsuccessfully for this rationale, the employee quits, often with some sort of mic drop. I wondered if either of you had seen this or just what you thought of it. It's a performance, right? Like oftentimes the, the same person is acting as both the boss and the employee. They are sort of performing this theater of great resignation. During this period of the great resignation, which Lee Claire referred to earlier, right? A spike in resignations and so-called voluntary unemployment during the course of 2021, especially. And as many have pointed out, much of the great resignation is attributable to the U.S.'s failure to give workers adequate child care options under COVID conditions, a social reproduction crisis, particularly when many schools are still closed. So one, one parent, usually the woman, right, quits their job to stay home with the kids. So that's very important, but it's not all that's going on either. We're seeing more strikes, more wildcat strikes, even in professions that are disproportionately male, like trucking. And as Lee Claire pointed out earlier about that UNESCO study, right, the, the creative sector sort of fascinated by this sort of performance of great resignation, that we're getting all these sort of mixed messages about what the great resignation is, what causes it, how much of it is COVID related, how much of it is a kind of general strike, I think is a kind of optimistic way that many Marxists have framed it. What is the great resignation and what is the sort of the performative element to the great resignation, because it does seem to have both elements of the sort of unwillingness to compromise, right? Like I'm not going back to a job, even if I need that job, if I don't feel safe, right? If I don't feel secure, if I don't feel even self-actualized in some way. Now, a lot of that might be fantastical, right? That's what we want to say to ourselves, but how many people are actually doing it? But clearly there are some people doing it. And then how much of the great resignation is just labor that's not getting charted? Mm -hmm. To think about Lee Claire's decommodified labor, right? Like how much of this work that people are still doing is just becoming work that they do without getting a wage? I don't know enough about the labor history to answer the question, but I am interested in the aesthetics of quitting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the aesthetics of quitting as opposed to what the reality of anti-work or post-work right probably really looks like. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly interested in this as someone who spends three months out of the year in Portland, Oregon, where there's an enormous population of people living in tents on the streets in Portland. This is also one of the most progressive cities in the country, of course, in terms of its voting base. So what's happening in Portland is what's happening in many places in the country, but just maybe in a very exaggerated and fast way. There was incredibly quick gentrification 
very fast rise in housing prices there over the past five or six years, despite the fact that there's, you know, no Republicans in Portland, basically. There was also no rent control protections. There was no resistance to developers. And so the cost of living in Portland rose just by incredible amounts, very, very fast. Several years ago, there started to be more and more people living on the streets. And you pair that with COVID era measures that legalized street camping. You also pair that with a liberal um, tendency to alleviate guilt by charity. And you have a lot of people who are actually very well outfitted for urban camping because a lot of very wealthy people in Portland have donated massive amounts of REI gear to people who are living on the streets. So the situation in Portland now is that like, it's just, it's unbelievable, frankly. Walking around the streets of Portland look more like walking around the streets of India, where I spent some time, I spent some time in, in New Delhi for a while. It actually strongly, to me, strongly resembles New Delhi, just in terms of the fact that like a really good pop- portion of the population is living outside. What's interesting about this to me is that the causes of this, of course, are widely debated and urban study scholars are doing lots of data work to try to figure out who these people are who are living on the streets versus who and are they former Portland residents? Have they come from elsewhere? How many are there because of mental illness? How many are there because of lost jobs, because of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But what's clear is that not everyone is there because they can't get a job. Right. There's like a substantial number of people who are doing urban camping in Portland because it's not worth it to work because work sucks and you can live on the streets fairly comfortably in a tent, especially if you have like nice air mattresses and tents, you know, and all sorts of things that are donated to you by guilty liberals that live right you know, in expensive houses above where you live. But the response of the liberal population in Portland to this situation is exactly what most of us would probably imagine it would be, which is a lot of not in my backyard, a lot of um, sort of support for police clearings of tent encampment areas, a lot of anger at the mayor for not taking more police actions against urban camping. And so this is not what let liberals want to see when 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 liberals imagine the great resignation this is not how they want to imagine it but this might actually be what it looks like and i want to say like while i was living in portland over the summer last summer and looking at this sort of landscape i was also like at the same time listening to npr where they were telling all these stories about people quitting their jobs and going and hiking on the Appalachian Trail. Mm -hmm. That's what liberals would like to imagine the Great Resignation is. It's like, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go hike the Appalachian Trail, not I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to camp out on the sidewalk in front of your $2 million home. But I, I do. So I think the aesthetics of this are really, really important. Yeah. That's exactly right, right? The like the memification of like the mic drop quitting because you don't need the job. Like that's what we want to think of the great resignation or you know, the van life Instagram as Michelle Chihara talked about on the last episode. Like those are the ways we want to see the great resignation, but I think your point about Portland and San Francisco looked the same way the last time I was there, which was before COVID. That's the part we don't want to to talk about. When you look at what the end of the Trump presidency, which coincided with the beginning of the pandemic and then the beginning of the Biden presidency, there was a moment of randomness in like February, March, April, May, 2020, where you could tell the sort of elite and administrative infrastructure of the US were like, it might not just kill poor people. Like we really don't know. We really don't know. 
there is an element of randomness here. So we are going to expand as minimally as possible, but certain social safety procedures, because we just, we don't know, right? It's not like it's, of course, we're going to build the freeway through the poor section of town. That's who's going to get the asthma. We know that. That's how you do it. But Tom Hanks got COVID. Right. I mean, totally. <laughs> that's sort of where the empirical data that produced the concept of great resignation started to take root. Am, am I correct about that? Right. People were like, I might die going to work. Like, I'm just not going to go. These, This is just what utter bullshit. Like, I don't get paid very much. I don't have a social safety net. Like, if I don't have to pay rent, I'm not going to work. If we have six months off for rent or whatever it is, if we can't be evicted. I think now the narration is already starting to change, right, of the, of the great resignation, which is sort of like, there wasn't that much labor militancy. I'm thinking of Jason Smith's article in the Brooklyn Rail, where he sort of tries to periodize that. And people have started returning to their jobs because, again, they, they need to socially reproduce themselves. They need to pay rent. So I, I wonder if the idea of the great resignation, I mean, again, to go back to what I said earlier, Right, just the contradiction in terms, the sort of grandeur of a slow lapse, right? If, if, if that doesn't sort of speak to our collective ability to speak about and try to narrate and try to generalize and provide an idiom for what happens to labor in a kind of exceptional moment. You know, I'm always the person who is like, there are no exceptions, everything is the same, nothing ever changes. But I do think that the first year of the pandemic, like there was some element of a kind of state of exception to certain economic norms, certainly to employment norms, to social norms. And I wonder what will happen to that terminology. I wonder if it will become antiquated or if it will continue to index some conversation and some set of actions that began to germinate even if it was a sort of phantom projection, just the, the sort of ideological rush and sort of awakening of seeing signs on windows saying, you know, the restaurant is closed, like we don't have workers. There's, there's no one here. Like no one's gonna do this job. I mean, I think, that, I think that's an interesting moment. I'm, I'm just not, I guess I'm not sure what to make of, of, of the sort of econometrics of it. The way in which you are interpreting the phrase, the great resignation, which I think is totally right. And I hope we hold on to this in ways that we we didn't necessarily hold on to a lot of the ways of describing the 2008 subprime crisis. There is no sort of one label that we affix to that moment mm -hmm. in history. I, I kind of mm -hmm. do hope we hold, hold on to the, the great resignation because I do think it's very evocative. The way you're interpreting it reminds me of Anna Kornblue on just our last episode. Her new book is going to be called Immediacy, the Style of Too Late Capitalism. Mm -hmm. This idea of too late capitalism that she's putting forward is that right, we have entered an economic system where the, you know, the future is no longer something that people hold dear or put into their cost evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. We have entered a phase where many people assume a kind of apocalypse is imminent, 
right? And that one way of interpreting that is that changes their relationship to work, right? If you're if you're not imagining retirement, right, if you're not imagining that Social Security is going to be there for you when you turn 65, right, your relationship to your job changes. So that resignation becomes not just quitting my job, that becomes quitting my faith in the future, mm-hmm. right? a resignation to, you know, the, the very possibility of a stable social contract, right? The very notion of a next generation seems increasingly implausible. I just, I'm going to be Lee Claire here and say, how is that new? (laughs) (laughs) Just in the sense that like, isn't that what, like, that's like the opening of the Port Huron statement. Basically, they say that they think that they're the first generation to assume that they're not going to make it (laughs) into adulthood. It's been Joy Williams' fiction since the 1980s, right? Sure. I mean, the nuclear imaginary, I just think that there's like been so many instances. And I write a little bit about this in the book, but it's something I'd like to write more about, which is the sort of micro generation to which I I think, Lee Claire, you also belong. And I think Anna also belongs and (laughs) that I belong to this who came of age in the early 90s, who graduated from high school in the late 90s. Me too. You too? Okay, good. <laughs> I can't judge ages. In any case, I think that, that that those of us in that generation were unusually and exceptionally in some ways insulated from the notion that our futures might not continue. Or that, you know, like I think... or. To, to, to put it in, in not a double negative, but because we came of age in that period of time that Phil Wegner calls between yeah, two yeah, deaths yeah. or whatever in the right, 1989 yeah. to 2001, that it was a long period of time during which there was not, not a major historical conflict, during which there wasn't a sort of imminent nuclear threat. Although since I had anti-war parents in the 80s, I had dreams of atom bomb explosions myself, but I think many of us didn't. And in, in which actually things actually felt in that sort of Fukuyamian way, post-historical for like a moment. The decadent 90s, yeah. Yeah. And if anything, politically, coming up as as someone on the left, I felt deprived Mm. of crises Mm -hmm. and places to intervene as a young person and was looking for crises and ways to intervene. And so I wonder if maybe scholars of our generation might be prone to seeing somewhat, I agree, sort of depressive or alarming kind of conditions of our moment as sort of producing an exceptional psychological situation. I actually think this is how most people, at least over the course of the 20th century, live. Since the bomb. Before that, I mean, my, you know, my, my grandpa, I have, I have, on one side, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. On the other side, they lived through the Great Depression as dry land farmers. Like, they were all starving. <laughs> so, like... You know, and and none of them thought that they had a future. None of Uh them did. Mm -hmm. I just don't really buy affectively that we're in a moment that's unique in that sense. I do think there's probably arguments to be made about climate change and the ways in which planetary conditions change those sort of ways of thinking about futurity. I think that there's arguments to be made about global capitalism and the end of the so sort of a visible socialist alternative. But I just, yeah, in terms of just threat or a sense of like no future, I think that's been something that generations of people have endured. And I like to say uh, in the Middle Ages, it was easier to imagine the end of the world than the beginning of capitalism. <laughs> the sense of the apocalypse, but it was a different register of apocalypse. Yeah. Right. It, it, was, sure. it was not duration. It, you know, it was like Anna's book. It was an immediacy. It was a, it was an always impending moment of 
of doom. So the the difference that I'm going to offer up that might be there is that I would agree, like the apocalypse, I've written about this too, but the apocalyptic imaginary is kind of the dominant mode, maybe the like the biggest uh, genre of culture from basically like the 1970s forward, right? Mm -hmm. Begins with concerns about the bomb. And for a while, the apocalyptic imaginary is all nuclear, but then it becomes environmental, pandemic, zombies, right? All these different types of apocalypse that sort of dominate popular culture, even, even up to the present moment. The difference being is we definitely grew up in that culture, but we're all freaking strivers. We all sort of internalize to some extent. And I, I, <laughs> so I, I speak to some extent for the people in this room, but more so for the sort of that generation that you're referring to, the sort of elder millennial generation or the late Gen Xers, who as a, one of the ways in which that generation is being studied is that they were sort of the last ones to put their pedal to the metal and believe in the meritocratic you know, American dream. Whereas the Gen Zers, with whom I feel a great deal of sympathy, they seem to be putting their money where their mouth is. They're willing to quit the job, not go to school, like live in the tent. That the sort of the too late capitalism is people not just grappling with the apocalyptic imaginary, but acting upon it. How is that different from the beats? And the Beats were absolutely the, the first generation of artists that were affected by the nuclear imaginary in this very immediate way. And they also did the same thing. They quit, they quit college. To bring it back to our previous conversation, they were not trying to professionalize. They did not see being poets and writers as jobs. In fact, they just tried to reject the very notion of having jobs. They were supported in various ways, like, you know, thank goodness for Willie Burroughs and his pockets full of money. They rejected sexual norms around, you know, sexuality. And I, I think talking about the beats isn't very sexy right now for various mm. reasons, but there may be a really good sort of comparison to be made on at least yeah. those grounds. Maybe to bring it back around the question of resignation, I do think that there's something, I, I have mixed feelings effectively about resignation as a political affect, mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe stronger articulations of political affects, refusal. like refusal. Yeah. And, and here I'm thinking in, about literary texts, and maybe some of these are some of the same books that Anna might be interested in, but I'm thinking about a book like Atessa Moshfegh's My Year of Rest and Relaxation, right? That's right. Even like something like Patricia Lockwood's yeah. Nobody is talking about this. No one. That's one of the ones she talks about. Right. But sort of these these books that have sort of alternating affective commitments to sublimity and depression. Mm -hmm. And I think that's I, I think that's an interesting affective dominant in contemporary fiction, at least. And maybe it reflects certain kinds of political effects, which are based on sort of resignation or quitting or there. I think there is a kind of interest in a sort of subversive depressiveness like I'm thinking about like no bones day <laughs> like that's not, not not resigning but it's a way of not working as hard like oh I'm gonna go to my job but it's gonna be a no bones day like there's this sort of kind of withdrawal a retreat and I think that that could that's probably you know like most things there are promises and perils to that being the dominant anti-work affect right now promises in the sense that it seems like it it is causing some like you say confrontation with the possibility people might not always work as hard as they possibly can, but also perils in the sense that it, I don't see it turning into 
anything like a sort of self-consciously collective movement. Mm-hmm. And as someone who believes that such things are necessary for lasting political change, I'm not sure what's next from something like that. Yeah, no, I, I don't have much to add to that. But I think it's very well articulated. It's like you were resigned at work, you are resigned at home. Now you've resigned and you're still resigned. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things right now, I'm spending here in Germany, is that there is a, a sense of a sort of like thriving non-university-based academic culture and foundations that are funded by the government, but for which you don't need academic positions, you don't need publications. I mean, it's sort of like a funded para-scholarly world. Um, and the same thing for culture as well. And, you know, just to bring it back to like the goddamn New Deal, I mean, just, I mean, just the sense of having a decommodified cultural sphere just changes the inflection of so many of these questions. Just having health insurance. You might not need it when you're a 21-year-old punk, but the time 20 years of like smoking cigarettes catch up with you and you have emphysema, then it comes in handy. There is a level of, I think, this like financial instability that is so pervasive in this conversation mm-hmm. right and to compare the sort of like absolute madness of the pandemic those days in march and april where it's just like one death report after another you know these this sort of like color maps expanding and to think that the affect that comes out of that is resignation like the intensity of that versus mm-hmm. well here we are i mean there is i think there is something problematically interesting or interestingly problematic and interestingly historical about that it's not the great outrage and it clearly no no that was lee claire leberg and rachel greenwald smith on matt siegel for more about our guests and a complete bibliography of works mentioned in this episode please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash great resignation On the next episode of The American Vandal, I'll be talking with Nora Shalon and Dan Sinekin about Wes Anderson's most recent film, The French Dispatch, and the publication from which it takes inspiration, The New Yorker. Until then, here's Dan Reeder with the special theme for this season. I got all all the fucking work I need. I got all. I got all the fucking work I need. I got all.